0: Welcome, everyone. You know, back in the day, I used to watch this television show called Dateline, and on each of these episodes, they would usually profile a murder. And some of the times, it was uh, the husband was doing away with the wife, or the wife was doing away with the husband. And I couldn't notice how many times in those episodes, it would start off with, it was a whirlwind romance. It was a whirlwind romance. It just seems like sometimes when you jump into a long-term relationship with somebody you hardly know... It doesn't always end well. And the same thing could be said in a way about jumping into a book of the Bible when you're beginning a study. If you're unfamiliar with that book, we may come to some wrong conclusions. So it's important to kind of set the context. Someone has said, or it's an old preacher saying, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And it's like a lot of preacher humor. It's not that funny, but it kind of makes a point. So we're beginning a new sermon series here today from the book of Esther. It's called Inconspicuous Providence, book of Esther. And because the book of Esther in the Old Testament may not be familiar to all of us, I want to take our time this morning to look at the 30,000 foot view, kind of get an overview, look at the historical setting, the geographical setting, the context of what's going on there. So we'll make sure that we're drawing the right applications. So a little bit more of a lesson today than a sermon so much, but uh, I want to say four things about the, the uh, uniqueness of Esther. Esther has, for first of all, a unique historical background, a unique historical background. Esther chapter 1, verse 1, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia in the third year of his reign. Now these events do not take, this story does not start with once upon a time because this is not a fairy tale. It is an historical account. The dates for this approximately are 483 to 473 BC. This is what's known as the post-exilic time period of Israel's history. Now we may or may not be familiar with that phrase, post-exilic time period. And let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of the history of Israel that kind of shows us how Esther wound up where she was when she was. If we start with Abraham, the call of Abraham by God is about 2000 BC. So there's a hook for you 2000 BC, call of Abraham. Abraham's descendants eventually wind up in slavery in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And that's called the Exodus, when they exit out of Egypt. That's about 1500 BC. You got 2000? Abraham? 1500 BC is Moses. And then the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. They live in Canaan. And for about 400 years, they are under the leadership of men called Judges. And there's a book called Judges in the Old Testament. But around 1000 BC, they have asked for a king. Israel's asked for a king. The first three kings of Israel are Saul, David, and David's son, Solomon. Those are the first three kings. 1000 BC. So that's your next hook. Abraham is 2,000, Moses is 1,500, David is 1,000 BC. That time period is known as the period of the United Monarchy for Israel. Monarchy is a, a king, kingship. So the nation was united under one monarch, one king, in those first three kings. But Solomon's son, under his rule, Rehoboam, there was civil war. There was civil war in the nation of Israel, and they divided into north and south, just like America had a civil war with north and south. America came back together, but Israel never did. They remained a divided monarchy. So that's the time period then. And you had Israel in the north, and Judah was the kingdom in the south. Israel and Judah, 10 tribes in the north, 2 the 12 tribes were in the south. Okay, so, and that's where I want to pick up. I'm going to read to you this paragraph. It's a little more detailed. Those are three general dates. Abraham 2000, Moses 1500, David 1000 B.C. Because of its sin, the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria, Assyria, in 725 BC. Likewise, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon in 590 BC. The surviving Israelites were carried into captivity in Babylon. They were deported, they became exiles in Babylon. For a period of 70 years. Remember this was prophesied by Daniel. That they would be in captivity for 70 years. And then under Cyrus. Babylon was conquered by Persia. So it became the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Persian leader. Allowed the Israelites to return from captivity. Back to Israel. So you had the period of the exile. When they were exiled into Persia. The post-exilic period. Post means after. It's the period after the exile when the Israelites are allowed to return. This is around 500 BC. So we have four increments of 500. Abraham is 2,000. Moses is 1,500. David is 1,000. The period, the post-exile period that we're in in Esther is around 500 BC. Not all of the Israelites chose to leave Persia and return to Israel. Some of them remained, including Esther and Mordecai, her guardian, and the other characters in the account of Esther. So, there you go. That's the historical background. Don't expect everybody to remember necessarily specific dates there, but we ought to know there are specific dates to remember. By the way, the Xerxes in this account is the same Xerxes that was in the movie 300. In the movie 300, it portrays a battle that takes place between the Spartans under Leonidas and the Persians under Xerxes, the Battle of Thermopylae, that's all historical, that part of that movie anyway. I'm not recommending that movie. I'm just saying that's what's taking place there, and it's this same Xerxes. So again, don't remember everybody to to expect everyone to remember those specific dates. Just remember there are dates to remember because this is an historical account. That's important because our faith is not based upon fairy tales. Our faith, is, our faith is based upon truth. And these are true events that took place. All right. So that's number one. Second thing that's unique about Esther: it is uniquely infamous. It's uniquely infamous. Job 35:10, where is God? Now, do you remember those books back in the day, the picture books? Where's Waldo? You'd open them up, you try to find Waldo in the crowd scene. Well, the question here in Esther is, where is God? Part of what's unique about this book is one of two books in the Bible where someone's name is not mentioned. Whose name is that? The name of God. The name of God is not mentioned in the book. He's nowhere mentioned, nor is there any instance of a miracle or indisputable divine intervention. No mention of prayer, the temple, Jerusalem, dietary restrictions, injunctions against intermarriage with non-Jews. The book of Esther appears to be merely a secular story of court intrigue in the Persian Empire without any real involvement of God in the events. So why is it in the Bible? And why would we study it? Well, ironically, this is one of the things that makes Esther a very relatable book of the Bible for many of us. I was telling somebody uh, before the service today, I used to preach in Norfolk, Virginia. This was way back in the day. And back in the day, when somebody would visit your church, the preacher was expected to go visit them in their homes. Do you remember that? Now, that's not the expectation now. People visiting the church these days probably don't want the preacher coming anywhere near their home. But back then it was an expectation. So these folks had visited our church and I went to visit them in their home. So there was a mom and two grown daughters and some kids were running around and we were chatting. And in the course of our conversation, the mom happens to mention how she had a vision where Jesus appeared to her and they carried on this conversation. I said, Really? And she said, Yeah, really. And then one of her grown daughters talked about how Jesus had appeared to her too and, and they had. Carried on a conversation, and then the other grown daughter was talking about how Jesus appeared to her, and I said, "My goodness, what did he look like?" And they said, "Well, he looks like he does, and all the Bible picture books pretty much like that." And they had had these conversations, and then they looked at me and said, "Preacher, haven't you ever? Hasn't Jesus ever appeared to you?" And I had to admit, uh, "No." And they kind of looked at me with sympathy, like I can't even believe you're a Christian, much less a preacher. But if you're like me, and I don't dispute anybody's experience, but if you're like me, and Jesus has never physically appeared to you, and God has never spoken to you in an audible voice from the sky, and the waters of the Atlantic Ocean have never parted before you, and you've never seen a miracle, and I'm not talking about the sunrise or a baby's birth, but that's all natural, but something truly supernatural, you might be able to relate to the book of Esther. Where God is a little more hidden than He is in some of these books where He is overtly manifesting Himself. These are some of the questions that people have in this book. Where is God in all of this? Why does it seem as if He's absent? If He's real and present, then why is He so inconspicuous? When life becomes unbearable, when evil is advancing, when suffering becomes intolerable, why doesn't God intervene in noticeable and obvious ways? Okay, so uniquely infamous in the sense that it's one of two books where the name of God is not ever mentioned. Anybody know the other the other one of the two? I didn't realize this until I was doing the research. Song of Solomon is the other one. Song of Solomon. Okay, third point. We're talking about four unique things about Esther. Thirdly, Esther is uniquely subtle. Esther is uniquely subtle. Isaiah says, Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Daniel Snyder writes, Many people are perplexed, even troubled, by the fact that God has not made his existence sufficiently clear. This fact of divine hiddenness is a source of existential concern for many people. For many Christians, the difficulty is exacerbated by the fact that the Lord has promised, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open for you. Having sought and knocked, and knocked again and again, they still fail to find, and no one answers the door for them. Trust in God sometimes crumbles, along with any hope, anchored in God's providence. Well... (sighs) The fact is that in the book of Esther, it's not that God is totally absent. It's that His presence is sort of beneath the surface. The theology of Esther is not above the surface. It's beneath the surface. God doesn't always act in obvious and overt ways. Sometimes He's a little more subtle than that. And I want to lay out for you four of the ways that God shows up subtly in the book of Esther. And the first one is probably the most obvious and the most important I'll spend the most time on. And that is through coincidences, through coincidences. Now, let me read something for you here. You have to hang with me a little bit because it's a lot of reading, but it's kind of an overview of the book. And you're going to notice a phrase that is repeated over and over. And that phrase is, it just so happened. It just so happened as we look at a string of coincidences here that happen in the story of Esther. Now, the story begins with a Persian queen's timely dismissal, which opens the door for Esther's ascent. When a search is begun for a new queen, it just so happens that Esther is brought in for the competition. It just so happens that she wins the favor of the eunuch in charge. It just so happens that Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. After becoming the queen, it just so happens that Mordecai, her guardian, is working in the king's gate and learns of an assassination plot. It just so happens that his name is recorded in the king's book of memorable deeds and there is a courtly oversight to reward him properly. When Haman becomes enraged at Mordecai, it just so happens that the lot cast To find the best day for the destruction of the Jews falls almost a year away, giving the Jews ample time to prepare for the day. When Esther goes to plead with the king for her people, it just so happens that she once again finds favor with him. When she defers her request until the next day, it just so happens that Haman crosses paths with Mordecai again and becomes so enraged he decides to execute Mordecai immediately instead of waiting Another 11 months. While the builders are constructing the gallows through the night, it just so happens that Haman decides he can't wait any longer and he goes to seek the king's permission in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, it just so happens that the king cannot sleep. It just so happens that the book of memorable deeds is brought in to read. And it just so happens that the reader opens to the spot where Mordecai's good deed is recorded. Immediately after the reading of the court's failure to reward Mordecai, it just so happens that Haman shows up. It just so happens that the king omits Mordecai's name, allowing Haman to think that the king wants to honor him instead of Mordecai. After the humiliation of having to honor Mordecai, Haman comes to Esther's banquet where she implicates Haman in the plot to kill her people. When the king leaves in anger and Haman begins to beg Esther for his life, it just so happens that the king returns at the exact moment when Haman's pleading looks like an assault on the queen. And when the king is further enraged, it just so happens that a eunuch points out the presence of the gallows, newly built, providing the king with a ready-made way to execute Haman. Those are just some of the coincidence in the book of Esther. Now, any one of them would be curious, but when you stack them all up together, they seem to point to a divine activity behind the scenes, coincidences. Now, here's a second way that God subtly seems to be acting in Hester, Esther, rather, and this is parapatia. Now, our wordsmith queen over here, Anne, is here, and I'll be curious to ask her afterwards if she's ever seen this word before, peripatia. Again, I did not until I was doing this research, but Anne, what peripatia means is a reversal of fortune, kind of an unexpected reversal of fortune. That's peripatia. There are several of them in Esther. Let me list some of them. Queen Vashti's downfall versus Esther's rise. Here's another one. Esther's fear of royal disfavor, she gets royal favor instead. Haman's joy at being invited to Esther's banquet turns into his disgrace at that banquet. Haman's plan to destroy Mordecai, and then Haman winds up having to honor Mordecai. Haman builds a gallows to execute Mordecai, winds up Haman... Is executed on those very gallows. Israel is doomed by a Persian law, and then Israel winds up experiencing victory by another Persian law. Six peripatias in the book of Esther. Here's a third way. Third person, omniscient point of view. The third person, omniscient point of view. We don't know who the author of Esther is. Apparently a Jew, very familiar with the royal Persian court. But the author, as the author writes, they have a perspective known as the third person omniscient point of view. In other words, there are things that it's curious as to how the author would know this. Let me give you these four examples. We read, now Haman thought to himself. How does the author know what Haman was thinking? Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. How would the author know that? But the matter became known to Mordecai. Again, how does the narrator know what Mordecai is thinking? But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Well, how would someone know that no one in the kingdom laid their hands on the plunder? It's because that's an omniscient point of view. The the author, the narrator, knows what's going on in people's minds. What that points to is the Holy Spirit, God's authorship and inspiration of this book. It's not a huge leap From the Holy Spirit, God's authorship, to God's providential intervention in the actual events of the book. And then there's one fourth thing. A subtle way that God is manifesting Himself. And that is, there's a remarkable similarity between this book of Esther and another Old Testament account. And that is the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Many similarities here. I don't have time to go into them all, but I want to show you four scriptural couplets. Even in the very wording of these scriptures, these verses, you're going to see some parallels between Esther, her story, and Joseph's story. Now the first couplet, Genesis 39.10 and Esther 3.4, Joseph's story. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. Esther 3.4, and when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. Second couplet, Genesis 41, 24. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and let them gather all the food of these good years. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Esther 2, 3. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins. This pleased the king. Genesis 41, 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen. He put a gold chain about his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Esther 6.11, so Haman took the robes and horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The fourth couplet, Genesis 44.34, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Esther 8.6, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? A lot of parallels, remarkable parallels. The attentive reader. Remember, this book would have originally been written for post-exilic Jews. They knew their Old Testament history. The attentive reader would have noticed the echoes from Joseph's story in Esther's story. God's activity in Joseph's story is explicit. Remember Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's explicit activity. The activity of God in Esther is implicit. But those readers would have noticed those similarities. So Esther's story is really an extended testimony to what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let me say one more thing, one fourth thing that is unique about Esther, and Esther is uniquely Christological. It is uniquely Christological. Jesus said in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures point to me. All the scriptures point to Jesus. All these Old Testament scriptures, including Esther, point to Christ. Now, God is both present in the Old Testament and somewhat hidden in the Old Testament, See, God, and there, there seems to be a progression. God manifests himself in very obvious ways. For instance, walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he is present with Abraham and with Moses and with Joshua. But at the same time, there's a hiddenness to God. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. The prophet says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face, from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah 45, 15, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. There's a shift. In Old Testament history, from presence to absence. We go from God speaking with and walking and talking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, which seems very natural, to the time of Moses where the Israelites say, we don't want God speaking directly to us. Have God speak to you, Moses, and then you talk to us. And then there's the period of the prophets where God is communicating through the prophets. But throughout this time period, there are fewer and fewer manifestations, visible manifestations of God. Solomon, King Solomon is the last person in the Bible to whom God appeared, I should say, in the Old Testament. The last person to whom God appeared. Elijah performs the last public miracle. Then when we get to the the time of the post-exilic time, books like Ezra and Nehemiah, there are no miracles and there are no physical manifestations of God. And then Esther is on the far extreme of the spectrum where the name of God is not even mentioned. God seems to be pulling away and distancing further and further as we go through that history. So that tension between the presence of God and the hiddenness of God is resolved when Jesus bursts on the scene. And He is the Word made flesh. He is the one who shows us God most perfectly. I want to list for you just a few of the parallels between the Jesus account and the Esther account. In the book of Esther, you have a royal figure who takes upon herself the plight of her people. She faces a life-threatening peril on their behalf. Because of her faithfulness, she brings about the salvation of her people. And as a result, people are filled with joy and they celebrate their victory over evil and death with a great feast. Same pattern in the account of Jesus. He is a royal figure who takes upon himself the plight of his people. He too faces a life-threatening, indeed it's a life-ending peril on their behalf. He too brings about the salvation of his people through his faithfulness. And as a result, his people are filled with joy and celebrate their victory over evil and death with great feasting. These are called types of Christ. They foreshadow Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. Isaac is a type of Christ. He foreshadows. Moses is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ. And I believe, although it's an inference on my part because it's not quoted in the New Testament, I believe that Esther is also a type of Christ. Even, even here, God shows himself to be kind of ahead of his time, so to speak. You know, In our culture and in our time, we like to highlight many firsts, especially for women. So you have the first woman astronaut, for instance. And then you might highlight the first woman, president, or the first woman vice president, for instance. We highlight those kinds of things. Well, here in the Bible... God seems to have chosen a woman, and the first woman to be a type and foreshadow Christ is Esther. I liken this to a TV series called How I Met Your Mother. Now, I have never watched a single episode of How I Met Your Mother, but I like the title and I know the premise. And the premise is of a man who's explaining to his children the circumstances by which he met their mother. And it takes apparently eight or nine seasons for those explanations to unfold. But you know, when you know your, parent, your parents' origin story, Mom, how did you meet each other? And tell me about your courtship and all of those kinds of things. It gives you a, a greater depth of appreciation for your parents. And maybe a little more understanding of yourself as well. Because we're, we're products of our parents in many ways. And likewise, what we're looking at in Esther, what we will be looking at over the next eight or, or ten weeks, is part of the origin story of our Jesus. It foreshadows Jesus. It leads up to Jesus. And it's going to help us to understand our Jesus even better. Maybe grow in our appreciation, fondness for and love for Christ. And it might even help us understand ourselves a little bit better as well. We might be surprised at just how much... We are able to relate to these characters in this story of Esther. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for preserving accounts like this for us in your holy word. We thank you for Esther and Mordecai, all they went through, for all their flaws, and they are there, and for their failures, you unfolded your story of redemption through them and their lives. Lord, for all our flaws and failures, you continue to unfold your story of redemption and incorporate us into that story as well. And so we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.